Like we're talking about facing giants, and this week we're going to talk about that giant of fear. Okay? Now, I think there's two basic giants in people's lives that prevent them, and they manifest themselves in a lot of different ways. But there's the doubt, the giant of doubt, and there's the giant of fear. Today, we're going to take a look at the giant of fear. So uh, get your notes ready because you're going to get some good stuff today. Philippians 4, 4 through 6 says this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, aren't you glad that peace gets there before understanding? Most of the time, we'd like that to be reversed, wouldn't we? We'd like to understand first and have that understanding provide peace for us. However, the Word of God tells us that the peace, which transcends all understanding, arrives before the understanding. It transcends it. It is beyond understanding. It is above understanding, encompasses understanding, but it arrives first. You can have the peace of God before you get the understanding about your current situation. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I know that there are things in my life that to this day I don't understand. But I can have peace about those situations. And so I want you to know today that the peace gets there before the understanding. Now, one of the things that this verse does not say is that it does not say that he will guard our hearts. Okay? And and, and, wait a minute. It does say that he will guard our hearts. So let's take a look at it. Now, it says that he will guard our hearts and our minds. So let's make sure that we understand that. What is the heart? What does God guard in your heart? When he gives you this peace, which transcends all understanding, he will guard your hearts and your minds, right? Now, what's your heart? Your heart is your decision-making entity, okay? It's your decision. It's the center of your being that decides what you're going to do. When you look in the Old Testament, it talks about your heart a lot, okay? Your heart is that central part of your being that is affected by your mind. It's affected by your circumstances, but your heart decides what it's going to do. Now, it's not just your feelings. A lot of times when we talk about heart today, we're talking about feelings, aren't we? But heart in the Old Testament is talking about that decision-making center in your life. So what does God say he will do? He will guard your decision-making process, and he will guard your what? Your mind. Let's think about what our mind is. Our mind is our receptor of truth. That's where we receive truth, is in our mind. Okay, now that transforms us, right? Paul says that let your, let your minds transform you. Let what you think about transform you so that you can prove what the will of God is. So now, what does God say here? Does he say that he's going to protect all of your circumstances? No, he does not say that. And when we believe wrong about the word of God, we will probably live wrong or expect God to do things that he has not promised that he would do. You know what happens when that occurs? You get a giant in your life. You expect God to do something, and he doesn't meet your expectations, so you have kind of chip on your shoulder toward God, right? Why didn't he do this with my little girl? Why didn't he do this with the people I love? Why didn't he do this with uh, the situations that I'm in? Why didn't he do that? And when when you have an expectation for God that he doesn't say that he will do, then it creates this giant in your life, this giant of disappointment, this giant of unmet expectations like we talked about last week, and you walk around with a misconception of what God has said. So let's make sure that we understand the the truth correctly, and let's make sure we understand what God's really saying. Now, how many of you like to sing? 
How many of you, well, let's say this. How many of you, okay, how many of you like to sing? How many of you don't sing well? Same people. Okay, now, now, how many of you like to listen to the radio, though? Yeah, I mean, those people know how to sing, right? I've got a clip here. And have anybody know the, the group, the afters? Yeah, they sing a song, let, let me make sure, Live On Forever. Have you heard that song, Live On Forever? No, you haven't heard it? Okay, now, I'm going to tell you, I've listened to this song over and over and over and over again. I've watched the video. I've seen the lyrics on the screen. I've done the whole thing. And when they get to the chorus, I'm going to testify to you today that they do not say live on forever. They say carnivore. Now, you doubt that, don't you? So they'll play the clip. Check this out and see if you don't hear the same thing I hear. How many of you heard carnivore? Carnivore forever. Yeah. I mean, I'm telling you, you hear it. Now, I'm just going to show you this, that the next time you hear that song, you're going to sing carnivore forever. Not I will live forever. Carnivore forever. And when you learn something wrong, you will always sing it wrong, right? When you learn scripture wrong, you will always live it wrong. So I want to be real careful today and really explain to you what the truth of the Word of God says here about fear. So uh, that was kind of fun, wasn't it? Now, did you really hear carnivore? I really did. No? Who didn't hear it? Let's replay it. No. Okay. We we have this idea that uh, sometimes God says things that he hasn't really said. How many of you believe that God has said that he will not give you more than you can handle? Come on. You guys feel a trap coming on. How many of you really believe that God has said? Some of you have a magnet on your, on your refrigerator that says, God will not give me more than I can handle. Some of you have crocheted pillows on your sofa that say that. But I want you to know he has not said that. Think about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul. Did the Apostle Paul get more than he could handle? In the end, you know what? Tradition says, and in fact, most scholars believe that he was beheaded when he, when he died. The Apostle Paul, beheaded. Was that more than he could handle? Well, I think so. I think so. So has God said to us that he will never give us more than we can handle? You know, when you look at that passage in context, what it's talking about is temptation. You will never be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. Okay, you'll never be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. There's going to be circumstances in life that you say, boy, I can't handle that. You know, how many of you like to watch autopsies? Okay, you can't handle it, can you? I'm just saying. So we have to be careful about what the Word of God says. And so, therefore, um, let's take a look at John chapter 16, verse 33. Now, we don't have that in the, on your outline. You might want to just jot it down. Because John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says this. I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. Now, you don't see very many Christian t-shirts with that imprinted on them, right? In this world, you will have trouble, signed Jesus. You know, you don't see that. You don't see many people wearing bracelets that remind you, hey, remember today, you're going to have some trouble. You know, we, don't want, we want to avoid that, don't we? And so you don't see that, but that's what Jesus says. In this world, you will have trouble. But he says this, too. Be aware, I have overcome the world. You trust me, no matter what you experience in life, It's going to be put in perspective, and you're going to come out glorifying God on the other end of it. Now, we have some fears, don't we? We have some fears. And sometimes our fears are built on the fact that we have not interpreted the Word of God correctly. 
But in this world, we have a lot of fears. I'm, I'm just, I was looking on the internet last night, uh, actually all this last week, and I, was, I, I finalized it last night because I have my top four favorite fears. Okay? Now these are actually psychological conditions. Okay? There is one that's called ablutophobia. Ablutophobia. Anybody here have ablutophobia? If you do have ablutophobia, we would smell you now because it's the fear of bathing or washing. Okay? And I, I, I checked you all this morning. Nobody has that fear. Okay? Uh, Allodoxophobia. Allodoxophobia. All of you men who are married, jot this one down because it's the fear of opinions. Okay? You don't have one. Okay? You don't have one, but you do fear the ones that your wife has. So, allodoxophobia. Then there's another one, and this is my favorite one. This one is cathisophobia. Cathisophobia. You know what it is? None of you have it because it's the fear of sitting down. (laughs) Honest. And in fact, I thought, that's got to be a joke. That's got to be a joke. So I started Googling uh, cathisophobia, and I came across this bulletin board in which this lady is pleading out for help. And she says, I have this condition. When I sit down, I get anxiety. I get fear. I get, I get so scared. And I just can't stand it when I'm sitting down. Does anybody else have this? And man, person after, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm going, really? Man, they must be really tired at the end of the day. And I think cathosophobia. I don't know. Now, I put one in your, in your outline this morning. It's called sesquipedalophobia. Sesquipedalophobia. Now, sesquipedalophobia is the fear of long words. Now, whoever came up with that is just mean. Have you ever, have you ever, if you had the fear of long words and you go to your therapist and the therapist says, oh, by the way, you have sesquipedalophobia. Oh, don't say that. It's too long. I just go, I don't know. But there are real fears out there. Now, for most of us, most of us, in fact, some of us might have some of those fears. And, and you know, I don't want to make light of that. But the truth of the matter is that most of us have fears, right? Let me give you four common fears that most Christians experience at some point in their life. Number one, the fear of loss. What if I lose my family? What if I lose my job? What if I lose my income? What if I lose my place in the community? What if I lose what's important to me? What if I lost those things? And so we live our lives so fearful of losing things that we never use that stuff for any good purpose. I just have to guard it. I have to keep it close. I have fear of losing my kids, so I keep them so close to me that I make them just a mess. You know, I make them uh, codependent with me, and I just say, oh, it feels so good to have my kids close. Oh, and then they never leave home, and you say, oh, I wish they'd leave home, and you have all kinds of trouble. Okay. There's also the fear of failure. Have you ever failed to start a project simply because you thought you might fail it? Yeah, I mean, that's a real common fear. Uh, the fear of failure. I don't want to let people down. I don't want to let myself down. I don't want to come in contact with my limitations. And so therefore, I have this fear of failure. Now, here's something everyone here has experienced, and that's the fear of rejection. Have you ever not gotten to know somebody simply because you feared that they would say, I don't want to know you. And have you ever been fearful of them knowing the real you? You know, because they would say, oh, I don't like the real you. And so what we do is what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. We make fig leaves and we pretend to be something other than what we really are. And then we go home dissatisfied because, boy, I wish I was loved for being who I am, not for being what I show myself to be. So the fear of rejection. And finally, there's the fear of the unknown. The fear of the unknown. You know, I would like to move somewhere sometime. You know, 
move to a different state, you know? But I have this fear of the unknown. What's winter going to be like? What will the summers be like? What will, you know, I, gosh, you know, I have this fear of the unknown. Many people have the fear of the unknown of the afterlife. What's it going to be like after I die? I don't know what it's going to be like. And so I have this great fear of that. Now, a few minutes ago, you didn't even know you had all those fears, but now you know. And you, so you say, thank you, Pastor Mike, for enlightening me and loading me down with all of these fears. Well, uh, here's the good news. In 2 Timothy 1.7, and you have this in your outline, it says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. Now, if you have fear today, where did it not come from? Where can we be certain that it did not come from? It did not come from God. Okay, it did not come from the Lord. For, the Lord. for God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity. So if you have that stuff, it didn't come from God. So we can't say, well, God made me this way. You know, have you ever done that, you know, to excuse all of your junk? You know, well, God made me this way, so I'll just have to bear with it. No, some things he did not give us. That's why it's important for us to know what the word of God truly says. And it says clearly that God does not give you a spirit of fear or timidity. What has he given you? How, what kind of spirit has he given you? Three things. Power, love, self-discipline. Power, love, self-discipline. If you can incorporate those three things and really magnify those three things, because they're present in your life now if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. But if you could magnify those things, power, love, and self-discipline, what do you think would be different in your life today? Well, in order to get there, we have to overcome the fear. So let's take a look and let's see what God has to say about that. Now, we're going to take a look at David, because I think David is a great example of overcoming this whole fear thing, or at least the, the, the faith part of it. Remember David, he's a young kid, and he's, out, he's a shepherd, right? David's a shepherd. So when you read the 23rd Psalm, I want you to think in terms of David. You know, he's out there, and he, hey, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Now, David had a couple of experiences when he was a kid, and he's watching the sheep. He had a, an experience with a lion and a bear. He killed both of them. A kid, a kid out there being a shepherd, killed a lion and a bear. Now, I think that's pretty incredible because it's not like he had a 30-odd six out there, you know, and he just blew them away. I mean, he had, he had to grapple with these animals, and he killed them. Now, that's a pretty brave guy. But later on in life, a guy named Samuel comes along, and Samuel's looking for the king, next king of Israel. Now, Saul is the current king, and God has rejected Saul. Saul has gotten kind of out of whack, and he's, uh, he didn't really want a king in Israel anyway. God didn't want, but, you know, the people cried out. So God gives us sometimes what he doesn't want us to have, even though we want to have it. Have you ever thought of that? A lot of times people will say, and this is another truth of the word of God, God wouldn't give it to me if he didn't want me to have it. You know, we always say that about a new car, you know, that's financed for the next 16 years, you know, that's costing us way more than we earn. And so we said, well, God, it must be God's will or he wouldn't let it happen. Oh, he'll give us what we don't need in order to show himself strong. And so the children of Israel are crying out for a, God, crying out for a king. Give us a king, give us a king, give us a king. And he finally says, okay, I'll give you a king, but here's the consequences. He's going to take your kids. He's going to take your money. He's going to take all this stuff that really, truly, rightly belongs to God. He's going to take it and use it for his own purposes. They go, oh, no, they don't even say that. They say, okay, give us a king. Yikes. So here's, here's Saul. 
he gets all messed up. God rejects Saul as the king of Israel. And he says, okay, Samuel, I want you to go out and find the new king. And remember, you're going to look for a king not like everybody else looks for. You know, people look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So I want you to go to this guy named Jesse. He's got, he's got eight sons, and I want you to check them out. So he goes, and he finds the sons. And first, and you know, the hierarchy in the Old Testament family is that you bring the eldest first. So he brings Eliab out there, and Eliab is head and shoulders above everybody else, and he's a good-looking guy, and Samuel looks at him and goes, oh, this must be the guy. And all of a sudden, God whispers in his ear and says, no, that's not the one. You're looking at the outward appearance, dude. Look at the heart. Brings the next eldest son. Nope, that's not one. Nope, that's not the one. And finally, they go through all of the sons, seven of them, and, and Samuel says, do you have another one? You know, so far we haven't found the right one. Do you have another one? Oh, yeah, I've got the kid. He's out there watching the sheep, though. Bring him in. David comes in, and Samuel recognizes him, and he says, that's the one. God whispers in his, that's the one. So he anoints him king of Israel. Now, he's just a kid. And I'm thinking that if I had been anointed king of Israel, I'd say, take me to the throne. You know, I want to live in the palace. I want to have some servants. I want to have a nice meal. Okay, here we go. No, David goes back out and does the sheep thing. He doesn't become king right away. Now there's always, when it comes to God's will, there's what God wants and there's when he wants it. Okay, what God wants and there's when he wants it. Okay, and so it's not the right time. It's the right person, not the right time. So David goes back to this thing and you read through 1 Samuel and you find all kinds of things that goes through David's life. But finally, his brothers go to war. Okay, Saul's leading the army of Israel against the Philistines. And, and they're out there, and, and David's dad says, Hey, son, uh, why don't you go check in on your brothers? Take some food out there for the people, you know, take some of the stuff. And so he takes it out, leaves it with the, the guy in charge of all the supplies, and he goes out and meets his brothers. And his brothers are out there, and, and, he sa- and David asks him, How's the battle going? They go, Oh, man, it's bad here. What are you doing here anyway? You just came, and they get kind of on his case. He said, you just came out here to watch the battle, didn't you? you? You should be out there watching the sheep. You just came here. And they get kind of, so he wanders away and talks to some other people. And he finds out that there's this Philistine giant. We know him as Goliath, right? Goliath is out there. How tall is Goliath? He's over nine feet tall. He's six cubits and a hand breadth. Okay, what's a hand breadth? Some of you guys have bigger hands than I do, but it's about nine inches. A cubit is? 18 inches, a foot and a half. Six cubits is nine feet and nine inches. He was a giant of a man. His spear weighed, the head of his spear weighed 15 pounds. He had 125 pounds of armor on him. He was huge. Okay, and he's out there taunting the Israel army. He says, okay, here's what we're going to do. You just bring out your best warrior. I'll fight him. If he beats me, we will become your subjects. If we beat you, you'll become ours. How do you feel about that? He goes, you guys are a bunch of wimps. He came out there every day for 40 days, every day, and just taunted them. You guys are a bunch of wimps. You can't fight. You don't have anybody that can stand up to me, blah, 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 blah. And David hears this. And David says this. Now, here's, a, here's pretty precisely what he says. Who does this uncircumcised Philistine think he is? Now, if you're ever going to quote something that's going to go in the Bible, think about it ahead of time. Think about it, okay? You, you might want to be a little more delicate. 
Who is this? Now, why was that important to David? Because this is an important part of the story. What was circumcision? It was a sign that these people belonged to God. These people belong to God. Now, what he's saying is, why does this guy that does not belong to God, why is he taunting the God of the universe? Who does he think he is? And he gets real indignant about it. And so he goes to his brother's brother say, hey, dude, you got to chill out. Goes finally, Saul hears about it and goes to Saul. And Saul says, uh, brings it to him. And he says to Saul, hey, man, I'll go out there and fight that dude. Because you're just a kid. You're just a kid. What are you going to do? So here we have it. Now, heroes and cowards both face fear. Okay? Heroes and cowards both face fear. Now, what's the problem for us when we face fear? We kind of cower sometimes, don't we? Have you ever played Mario Brothers? I'm going to date myself here. You know, you have this, you're laughing. You have this level, and you go, you know, and he bounces along, and he catches mushrooms, you know, he catches coins or whatever he's catching, you know. And then at the end of every level, what does he have to face? The dragon. You know, some of us are kind of like Mario Brothers, and we kind of like this thing where we just catch the, you know, know, we get the mushrooms, and we get the coins, and we get the stuff. But when it comes to facing the dragon, oh, let's go back to the beginning and start over. You know, that's the kind of way we live life. And so, now, let's talk about courage for a minute, because heroes and cowards both face fear. Heroes just convert their fear into faith. True heroes of the Christian faith convert their fear into faith. And that's a fill-in for you there. So convert fear into faith. Face your giant. Now, it's a choice. Now, notice David's brothers. What do they look like? If you went out there on the battlefield, you would see them. They go, wow, they look like soldiers. They talk like soldiers. They act like soldiers. They smell like soldiers. They must be soldiers. But you know what? When it came to battling the giant, what did they do? They cowered. They cowered. Now, Now, fear will always cause you to focus on self-preservation. Fear will cause you to focus on self-preservation. That's what the brothers did. They said, oh, man, we go out there. He'll whip us, okay? He will make mincemeat out of us. He He will annihilate us in a heartbeat. He's big. And so they said, I need to preserve my life. So therefore, I will not face the giant. Now, for us, you know, that might be us. Now, David, on the other hand, what does he have? He has faith, faith. Now, what caused him to have faith? Because he was going to fight for the honor of God. And he knew that God was on his side. When your focus is on your self-preservation, it will always result in fear. But when your focus is on God and his honor and what he wants to do, you will always have faith. So where your focus is, is where you're going to end up. You're going to either have faith or you're going to have fear. Now, David has three things working against him here. Let's be honest, because that's what we have a tendency to look at, right? When we're in a fearful situation, we'd say, okay, the odds are stacked against me. David had some odds stacked against him. Number one, he was small, okay? When you talk about everybody was small compared to Goliath, right? But David was younger and smaller and less experienced. He was small compared to Goliath. And so he doesn't have the size. He doesn't have the presence. He doesn't have the fear factor that Goliath has. And so he he has this going against him. He's smaller than the giant. His brothers are against him. His brothers are against him. They said, dude, you can't go out there, David. You're just a kid. You're a shepherd. You're not even a soldier. You can't go out there. And they kind of poo-poo him, and they won't even talk to him very much about it. So he says his brothers are against him. Third thing, he's alone. Nobody else is going to go out there with him. 
So we look at those three things. Now, are those three things true? Is he small? Yeah. Are brothers against him? Yeah. Okay, is he going to go out there alone? Yeah. Those three things are true. When we face our giants, when we face the battles against us, we will always look at things that are overpowering and overwhelming, and they will be true. You can't fake yourself out. You can't say, oh, that's not true, that's not true, that's not true. You can't say that. But what you can say is that there's someone with me. Even though I appear to be alone, I am not alone. God is with me every step of the way. And when David realizes that, he says, I'll go out there and do it. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. What what does being wrong feel like? What does being wrong feel like? Okay, here, help me. Daniel, you said what? Humiliated. Humiliated, okay. I was thinking, you know, I'm a more basic person. I was thinking of bad, you know, you know. Men are not really good at expressing their emotions and stuff, so it's just good or bad, you know. So I'm thinking bad, you know, and, and humiliating is, is probably a much more accurate. Anybody else? How does it feel when, when you're wrong? How does it feel when you're wrong? Bad, humiliating. Nobody else has anything else, huh? That just about covers it, doesn't it? Pardon me? Horrible. Horrible, yeah. And, and it just stinks, okay? Now, I'm going to tell you this. That's not true. What you said is not true. That is how you feel when you are found to be wrong. Because uh-huh. ah, when you are wrong, what does it feel like? It feels right. Okay? Have you ever been fighting about something? You say, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. And you, know, and, and you keep going and you feel like you're right. And then finally there's this piece of evidence that shows, oh, I'm wrong. That's when you feel bad. But when you're truly wrong, you feel right. And so when we face our giants and face the battles and we see all these things against us, we feel right because we see all the evidence that proves that, but we've missed out an important ingredient, and that is God has been with me in the past. He is with me now. He'll be with me in the future. God is with me. And when I'm doing the things that God wants, I need not fear about all the truth that there is facing me. God is greater than the things that I face. Now, back to this feeling right, you know. Have you ever been in an argument? Most guys are this way. You're, you're arguing with your wife or your, your significant other, you're talking, and all of a sudden you get to that point where you realize you're wrong. What do you do? Oh, honey, I am so sorry. I really <laughs> choked. I was wrong and you are right. No, what does a guy do? Changes the subject. Yeah, change the subject real quick. Now, ladies, whenever that happens, that's us admitting we were wrong. We're going to do a, we probably need to do a series on relationships, huh? Yeah, that'd be helpful. Okay, now, so there's a big difference. So now, back to David. He knows he's smaller. He knows his brothers are against him. He's alone, but his God is with him. His God is with him. And that's when fear is converted into faith. That's when your fear gets converted into faith, when you realize that my God is with me. My God has directed me. My God has empowered me. My God has given me this as my mission, and I'm going to pursue it, and I'm going to accomplish it. Therefore, what do we need to do? When that happens, we, number two, this is your feeling, change your perspective, okay? 
Now, before, when we have fear, what are we saying? If it is to be, it's up to me. Now, when we change our perspective and realize, oh, yeah, those things are true. They're all against me, but God is with me. Then my perspective changes completely. You realize that God is with you and he is not against you. God is with you and for you, not against you. How many of you come from Catholic background? Raise your hand. Be proud. Okay. Catholic background. Now, was God against you ever? Just, I'm going to just say one, one little three-letter word, none. Was God against you? Did you ever get your fingers whacked with a ruler? Did you ever get swatted? Did you ever get a, And did you ever think, God's against me? Because she represents God, and God is against me. I want you to know that God is for you. God is for you. He loves you. He wants to use you. He wants to empower you. And a lot of times we think that when we get whacked with the ruler, God's saying, Oh, I can't use you. I can't use you. I can't use you. And pretty soon we go get to this thing where God's not for me. God's against me because I always mess up. And it's all about sin. And it's all about violating God's laws and all that. And I'm here to tell you that God has given laws and he's, he has defined what sin is. And you know how the book of James defines what sin is? Knowing the good you ought to do and not doing that. No, he doesn't define it as, hey, you've got this list here. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. He defines it in terms of the good that you ought to do that you're not doing. Now, is God for you? Yeah, he's for the good that you ought to do. He wants to empower you to do that. And so David, here's David out there. And he says, man, I'm going to stand for the honor of God. This guy, this uncircumcised Philistine, he cannot talk about my God that way. You guys might let him, but I'm not going to let him talk about my God that way. I'm going to go get some stones. I'm going to get a slingshot. And, I'm going to... and Saul, bless his heart. Saul says, dude, here, put on my armor. And he puts it on. He goes, oh, man, I can't fight in this. You know, it's too big for me. It's too heavy. I'm just a kid. And so he says, oh, I'll, get, I'll get some stones and a slingshot. And I could imagine Saul, you're going to what? You think that's going to work? Oh, go for it, kid. You know, we got nothing better because this guy can wipe out our whole army. So he goes out there, whacks him in the forehead, knocks him down, makes him unconscious, goes out there, takes his own sword, whacks his head off. Ha, job done. Job done. And I could imagine, oh, man, wouldn't you like to be David at that point? Look at your brothers and go, yeah, how do you like me now? You know, what do you think now, big guy, Mr. Know-it-all? Yeah, want me to whack your head off? Yeah, and they run off, you know. Uh, you know. And David doesn't do that, but that's probably what I'd try to do. Uh, but, but now, Colossians 2.7. How do we change our perspective? How do we change our perspective? Because we've been bombarded all of our lives with all of this stuff. God's against me. He's, a, you know, he's opposed to me. He wants to just punish me. He wants to, you know, and I know he loves me, but it doesn't feel like love. But, you know, all this stuff. Here, Colossians 2.7 says this. Let your roots grow down into him. Let your roots. Where are you rooted right now? I dare say most of us are rooted in our TVs. Okay, rooted in our TVs, rooted in our work, you know, maybe rooted in our families, uh, but we're rooted in something that we derive our nourishment from. Okay, so where do you get your nourishment? You know, your soul-sustaining nourishment. Okay, that's where you're rooted. So in each person, it's probably going to be a little different. Okay, it might be your family, it might be your work, it might be your hobbies, it might be whatever it is. 
but you're rooted, and that's where you get your nourishment. That's where you go, oh, man, when I do that, I feel so good. I feel fulfilled. I feel really great. Well, here's what uh, Paul says in Colossians. He says, let your roots grow down into him. Let God, let Jesus be your nourishment. That soul-sustaining nourishment. Let him be that, and let your lives be built on him. Okay? In other words, what he says is good for you, do that. Do what's good for you that God says. Why? Not because he wants to punish you and whack the back of your hands with a ruler. What he wants to do is give you the best stuff for you. He knows how you're made. He knows best how you operate. Lean on him. I have this couple in my car uh, this last week, and, uh, and they're just a young couple, and uh, I take them to the doctor, and, and, uh, and they're going to get saved. Uh, I, I love these guys. They're, uh, it's really awesome. Uh, and I've been devising how I'm going to do that. We're going to have a conversation probably Monday or Tuesday. I'm gonna have them, they go, they, I take them every day. Uh, Monday or Tuesday, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask them if they've ever been to church. Oh no, no, I, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't do the God thing. That's what I anticipate they'll say. If they don't say that, I'll probably have nothing to say. Uh, but uh, now I'm pretty quick on my feet, uh, so they'll say something like that. No, we don't do the God thing. I say, well, you know, have you ever made a bad decision in your life? Now I know these guys already, and they have, and they're gonna say, and they know that I know, because we've talked. And they're going to say, well, yeah. I said, now, if you had a good friend, a really good friend that you trusted and you knew they loved you and they gave you some advice about that, would you take it? You know, they'd probably, oh, yeah, because, man, I'm struggling right now, you know, doing this thing. And, and I, yeah, I'd probably do that. I'm going to say, that's who God is. God is the one who loves you, that knows best how you operate and wants the best for you. Would you lean on him? And that's what it says here in Colossians 2, 7. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. You will overflow with thankfulness. Now, if you don't have a heart of thankfulness right now, I want you to go back and evaluate where you're rooted, what you're rooted in and what it is that's giving you that soul-sustaining nourishment that you so desperately need. And maybe you don't have soul-sustaining nourishment. Maybe because you're not rooted into God. Now, Psalm 37, 4, it says this. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself. I love that word, delight. Delight yourself. Make yourself happy in the Lord. Okay? Now, if you know God, and you know the Lord, and you know Jesus, man, you can't help but smile when you realize, they love me. They love me. They've done so much for me. And if they've never done a thing in your life, well, I'm going to tell you this, Jesus died for you. And you've got to smile at that. You know, you've got to smile and say, wow, somebody loves me that much that they would actually take my place in death? Yeah. It says this, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you what? The desires of your heart. How many of you would like to have the desires of your heart? Okay. How many of you would like to have the desires of your heart as your heart is right now? Or... What the scripture says here, first, delight yourself in the Lord. Let your heart be like his heart. That's where delight comes from. When your heart is like his heart, when your heart is like his heart, he will give you what he wants, and he will give you what you want as a result of being delighted in him. 
Not in your sinful nature, not in your own selfish heart, where I'd like to win the lotto, I'd like to have a new car, I'd like to have a whatever. You know, that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is when your heart becomes like God's heart, he'll give you that stuff. Now, here's some practical tools to help you face your giants. Number one, pray. Pray. I want you to, if you do not have now a regular time of prayer, you know, a time where you can pray to God. Now, what is prayer? Talking to God, right? Well, I'm going to suggest that you do something different. Quit talking to God so much and listen to him. Prayer is not talking to God. It's talking with God, giving him a chance to talk. So many of us, we like to pray, and uh, you know, I, I love these people that say, oh, man, yeah, I prayed for four hours this morning. I said, what would you learn? Oh, nothing. I was talking to God. I said, wow, you know, you spent four hours talking to God about stuff he already knew. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. Yeah, talked four hours talking to God about stuff he already knew. Say, do you think he's got it now? Or are you going to have to do that again tomorrow? No, conversation with God is talking and listening. And if we did more listening than we did talking, we would probably be a lot farther down the road. So when you pray, I want you to spend a significant amount of time in that, but I want you to spend the bulk of your time listening. Now, how do you hear God? Read his word. Read his word. Read God's word because that's God's word. That's God talking in his, the Bible is God talking to me and to you. So spend significant time listening to him and saying, what, what does it say? Try to figure out what it means. And then what am I going to do? That's simple. You can spend about 15, 20 minutes in the morning doing that. What does it say? What does it mean? What am I going to do now as a result of knowing it? And the goal is not to know it. The goal is to learn it so that you can live it. Learn it so that you can live it. Don't learn it and let that be the end of the process. Learn it so that you can live it. Okay. Now, second thing I want you to do, second practical tool here, is stretch your faith. Now, do something that you've never done before. That's how you stretch your faith. If you keep doing the same stuff that you've always done, your faith will always remain the same size. We often think that faith is grown by knowing more stuff. I'm going to suggest that's probably not the best way to learn faith. The best way to learn faith is to put yourself in a position where you need God to rescue you. Now, don't be dumb. You know, don't be dumb. But do something that requires God's power in order for it to be accomplished. Do something that you have never done before so that you can trust God with more of who you are and learning more of who he is. Most of the time, we think that our faith is stretched by learning something. Okay, read the Bible or go listen to Pastor Mike at church or whatever, and my faith is expanded. No, your knowledge gets expanded. Faith is never expanded until it is put to work. Until it's put to work. Until you trust God for something that he has said that he would do. That's when faith gets expanded. We're, we're in our small group, we're studying, um, what's his name? Abraham. <laughs> Good. <laughs> what's his name? Uh, Abraham. At least I didn't say God, huh? <laughs> but, but Abraham. And Abraham, you know how Abraham learned faith? God said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Oh, okay. And so he, what does he think? He starts devising ways for that to happen. He has this, he has a servant. He, he and his wife are old. 
beyond childbearing years. And he goes, whoa, if I'm going to be a great nation, I'm the father of a great nation, I'm going to have to have somebody to pass this on to. And I'm too old to have kids. So therefore, my servant, Eliezer, he's going to be the guy. And God says, no, that's not the one. He goes, okay, now what? Oh. And he looks at Sarah, and Sarah goes, no, I'm too old. And so she says, here, I have a servant, Hagar, have a baby with her. Guys, if your wife ever says that, don't do it. Because it comes back to bite you. Uh, every time. I know. No, I don't. I don't. I know because I read about it. That's what I meant. Cindy's not here. Okay, so he says, okay, so he has a child with Hagar, and God says, nope, that's not the one. And you can imagine, you know, Abraham go, oh, man, what now? And so uh, God finally tips him off. He says, you're going to have your own child with Sarah, your wife. We are. Lo and behold, she does. And that's where this great nation is. Now, how did, how did Abraham learn to walk with God in faith? He learned by experience. How do you get experience? By making mistakes. Hate to say it, but you learn faith by making mistakes. If we never do anything, we will have a whole bunch of knowledge, but we will have very little faith. So do something with what you know. Now, don't don't intentionally make mistakes. I'm not saying that. But do what you think God wants you to do, and if it's not the right thing, you know what he's going to say? No, that's not quite it. Turn a little to the left. Turn a little to the right. One of Bill's sayings that I just love about him is he says, God cannot steer a parked car. Okay? God can't steer a parked car. So get your car moving. And he can direct you left or right. He might tell you to back up even. But he can't get you away from the curb if you don't hit the accelerator. Okay? So God doesn't steer parked cars because it doesn't change a direction. Okay? So got to have your car moving so he can change your direction. So do something. Okay? Stretch your faith. Number three. Trust God for the results. Trust God for the results. We are so result-oriented people that when we go embark on, an, on a, an adventure, it's always with the result in mind. Okay? Now, what's this going to end up being like? What's this going to end up looking like? And if we think that the end result is not what we think it should be, then we don't embark on the adventure. So if God says to do something, just do it. Trust him for the results. If God says, hey, I want you to speak to your neighbor about me. I want you to invite him to church. Oh, no, they'll never come to church. They don't like coming to church. They've told me that they don't want to come to church. No, no, no. But God says, invite him to church. You know, and you say, no, no, I'm not gonna, I can't do that. No, I don't want No. Well, trust God for the results. Because we have this result thing that we filter all of our, all of our actions through. And if we don't think the result's going to be achieved, we don't perform the action. So I say this. Trust God for the results. Don't be a result-oriented person all the time. Okay? Just say, if God says, I'll do it. Let's see what he does. Remember Jonathan? And I tell this story all the time. I love this story of Jonathan. He's got there, Saul's got his army, and they're, they're on one hill, and the Philistines are on the other hill. And at night, one night, uh, Jonathan gets his armor bearer and brings him out. and says, hey, why don't we just go over there in the enemy camp and see what God will do. You know, there's thousands of those Philistines out there and two of us. Let's just see what God will do. 
Man, he trusted his God so much that he goes over there and God creates confusion. He lets them kill about 20 people and creates confusion. They end up running off and killing each other and doing all kinds of stuff. And, uh, and I can imagine Jonathan and his armor bearer at the end just going, wow, that was pretty incredible. If we could live lives like that, let's just see what God will do. Let our faith be expanded. Trust God for the results. Pray about it. But when we pray, we're going to listen. And God's going to say, hey, go do this. Try this. Talk to here. Talk to him. Talk to these people. And we're going to see God do some incredible things. I want you to live a life fear-free. Okay? I want you to live a life that says, I trust my God and I will fight for the honor of my God no matter what. 